Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my co-host Michelle. Hi Stephanie. And we have a special guest today. Uh, she's actually one of our graduates and that is uh, Ashley Collegian Blunt. Hi. Hi Ashley. And she's um, come here to talk to us today about her own writing as well as you know how to structure a writing career and how she got started as a writer. But first before we do that, I should read out her very impressive bio. So Ashley's an award-winning writer. She's written about traveling in North Korea for the magazine Kill Your Darlings and the World History of Genocide for the Sydney Review of Books, as well as writing book reviews for The Australian. Her Armenian travel memoir was shortlisted for the 2017 Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award and received a 2015 Varuna Fellowship. She also writes regularly for The Cusp and the Newtown Review of Books, and she completed a Master of Research in Creative Writing here at Macquarie, which is very exciting. And right now she's working on a manuscript entitled How to Be Australian, and this project received a 2017 KSP Fellowship. Uh, she also writes comedy, and her comedic writing explores direct-to-brain digital text streaming for McSweeney's and growing up with a digital revolution for Griffith Review. And she's also appeared at Story Club, the National Young Writers Festival, and Noted. So hi, Ashley, again. Hi. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, thank you for coming in. It's so exciting to meet an actual real-life writer. <laughs> <laughs> I know Michelle is an actual real-life writer, no, too. Michelle is... Uh... <laughs> but it's always it's always great to get a to get a writer in here to pick their brains. So, Ashley, when did you decide to become a writer, and what got kind of got you interested in pursuing a writing career? I'm one of those people who's always written. Mm. I was writing when I was a little kid, and <laughs> I think I think one of the the things that got it into my head that I could be a writer professionally was that at seven I had a little story published in I guess school book that was compiled so my little story was selected from my class to be in this book and I think that I think that changed something in my brain so that was my destiny from then on (laughs) but actually my parents were really keen on me doing a degree that was that I could translate into a career immediately so they sort of pushed me into journalism which I understood but the journalism wasn't the right thing for me at all it was it was pretty much a disaster because I just it really actually turned me off from writing. Uh, so I moved overseas and taught taught English in Asia and then in uh, South America for a number of years and didn't really write much at all at that time. But in 2010, I'd moved back to Canada and was sort of just thinking about what I wanted to do in the future. And at the same time, a few events transpired that gave me an idea. I had this sort of key idea about what I could write a book about. And it felt like something worth saying mm. this is something that like was worth exploring and that's when I turned really seriously to writing was with when I dedicated myself to that project and that's actually so that was 2010 that I started that and that ended up being the manuscript that just last year was shortlisted for the Kiliodorian's unpublished manuscript award so it's been a long time mm. uh, in the process of that but when I started working on that project seriously that's when I started thinking that I was working towards a career in, in writing. So I want to come back to a few things. We'll come back to the manuscript, but what was it about journalism that kind of didn't do it for you? I'm interested now. <laughs> Partly just seeing the industry from the inside and mm. like the way, you, because you're working to such tight deadlines, especially if you're writing for so a, day, a daily newspaper, for example, so you've really got to push people to answer your questions. And so the deadlines were stressful. Uh, I was very shy, so calling strangers up on the phone and demanding that they tell me things that they didn't want to talk about was very stressful. So I didn't really respect 
a lot of aspects of the industry and I, I knew it wasn't the right thing for me personally so mm. that between those two things but I guess at the same time did you find that as 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 a writer you did gain from that discipline and and also you know sort of that that I guess that beautiful decorative <laughs> sentence because I mean so many um of 20th century writers etc etc you know are and have their um, roots in journalism. So would you say that it, it impacted on, on your style, your thinking, your discipline? Absolutely. And the skills I gained from it, I've used throughout my life since then, mm. particularly because I would, in the journalism degree, it was like sort of within the context of a larger communications degree. Mm. So that was I was able to develop a lot of skills from that, even with the companies I taught for writing various communications things for them. But but more closely tied to journalism, I spent a lot of time developing interview skills, which isn't something that if I'd just taken a creative writing degree, I may not have mm-hmm. spent a lot of time doing that. So in that manuscript, I actually interviewed 150 people in, in three countries to learn what I needed to learn to talk about the, the topics that I was handling. So definitely the skills I developed like later came into uh, use and great value to me. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this manuscript because it's it's very interesting and very um, dark subject matter. So if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the story is all tied up in my identity and and then, you know, on the very small scale and then on the very large scale, the geopolitics around uh, the denial of the Armenian genocide. So growing up, my surname was Kalajan and that's still part of my surname now. I kept it when I got married. And that was an Armenian surname. And I knew that. And I knew my dad had dark skin and sort of looked different from the people around. But he was, you know, he grew up in an Armenian community near Niagara Falls in Canada. But then he joined the military. And so when I was born, we lived way out west and we were transferred all around the western provinces. And so we never lived close to my Armenian family. So I didn't really, I knew I had this name and this label and that stuck in my head. But I didn't really know very much about my family. My dad wasn't the kind of guy to talk about it that much. When I was 14, his father died, and we flew out to the funeral. And the funeral was in an Armenian church, which didn't mean anything to me. But it was in a different language. And I I thought we were in the wrong place. I was looking around at all my family to see who, if they understood what was being said by the priest, because I didn't know anyone in my family spoke another language. And I couldn't, I mean, I put together that this must be Armenian, but I didn't know that my grandfather spoke that language. And there was so much I didn't know. And then a couple years later, my aunt ended up at a family gathering telling about how my great-grandparents had escaped the Armenian genocide and how they'd ended up in Canada in 1920 as refugees. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible story. And I had no idea there was this depth of of uh, violence and... and, and uh, just something so different from my family, which had been very safe and, you know, couched in sort of middle classness in my mind as, as a kid growing up. And so that was interesting. But there were lots of books written on the Armenian genocide, and I read a couple of them, and I was like, okay, that's, that's interesting. But I didn't really fully realize the impact that that history had on me as an individual until I was in my 20s. And at this point, I'd lived all over the world, and I'd been teaching students from different countries and I thought of myself as completely like culturally enlightened and empathetic to everything and then for the first time I met someone from Turkey and she was someone my age and we met through a a, a university program I was part of 
And my just reaction, as soon as I was told by a third party that she was Turkish, my whole body just rejected everything about her. I wanted nothing to do with her. I didn't want to have to work with her. I didn't want to have to know her. And that surprised me so much that I, di I didn't know. I mean, I knew this was connected, obviously, to my Armenian history. But I didn't, I never expected to feel something like that within myself. And so that was where the idea from the book, months later, reflecting back on it, I thought, okay, I need to fully understand what's going on here. And I had luckily, rationally sort of talked myself out of this visceral reaction that I had. And I said, I want to, I want to meet this girl and I want to work with her and I want to understand what's going on within myself. So she was wonderful. She was amazing. Just lovely. We had so much in common. Uh, so then once we became fairly good friends and so I eventually asked her almost a year later I said you know I have this thing in my history and I don't know if you're aware of like from my surname that my history is Armenian um, but I, I and I don't know what you know about this but I know being from Turkey a lot of people in Turkey currently believe that the, what my great-grandparents survived you know didn't happen uh, and so she very bravely said to me, you know, history isn't important to me. This isn't something I think about a lot or, you know, really I've ever invested myself in. But she's like, I believe what I was taught in school, which is that that didn't happen. And that was just such a hard blow. And our friendship actually kind of fell apart after that. We never really discussed it again. So it was a question of, of knowing, but actually choosing not to know, as opposed to it just being a surprise in the, in the sense that, you know, she'd never heard of it or, or whatever. It was It was actually... A, a really conscious decision to choose a version of history that was more palatable. Would you? And I think from her point of view was more believable because she had been taught that in her school textbook. She had been taught that by her government. And it wasn't really up for debate amongst the, the context she was in. So she had heard this other history, but it was just easy to reject it because, oh, that's just something they say. And of course, they would say that because... I mean, obviously, you'd have language divides, it, it, you know, and barriers to actually mm. sort of looking, I guess, at, at Turkish um, sort of textbooks, etc. Mm. Et, et um, but ha have you come across sort of either translated versions or, or sort of seen the the, the the sort of the material st stuff of, of that? Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's Armenian scholars who have looked at those translated texts and like a lot of those scholars actually speak Turkish as a native language. Mm. Um, so they've sort of written in, in uh, you know with the writing about the genocide they've written about the denial and how it's now sort of uh framed in turkey and there's even turkish scholars who have done the same thing because there's now some prominent turkish scholars who have researched this history and brought a lot of for example turkish government documents to light that sort of trace the history of the genocide and the government policies at the time and um have like really bravely stood up to their own government and said this is what you're teaching, this is what's in our textbooks, but this is what our own history actually shows. So it would actually go to sort of university levels in terms of the non-existence of the genocide. Absolutely, and it's it's portrayed in different ways. Like sometimes it's portrayed as, oh, there weren't Armenians here. And other times it's portrayed as, it was a civil war and just as many Turks died as, so it's, the denial is, is incredibly complex in the way it's portrayed. Because I mean, I, I guess it's it's a little it's 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 a little closer than Australia's genocide of Indigenous people. And what I'm thinking about is, of course, I grew up when we I'm older than you both, but I grew up without the story of the genocide right. or of the violence. Right. But then by the time I reached university, um, every uh, 
uh, university sort of academic course, etc., that I ever went through was dedicated to unearthing um, the, the, the sort of the genocide. And I guess perhaps that's a measure of the separation between sort of the institution of the university and state mm. um, in Australia that perhaps isn't so... Uh, so effective in, in, in somewhere like Turkey. Well, in Turkey, the government, the current government has a really hard policy of denial and they invest a lot of money in it. But that said, it is now that the internet is available and people have access to wider resources, there there is a large um, uh, number of Turkish citizens who have rejected what they've been told and mm-hmm. have and have, you know, independently researched these things and read, you know, the competing narratives and and there was actually a petition that was signed by 30,000 Turkish people in recent years that said that we believe that the the narrative of the genocide and we uh, want to apologize for that, which was really powerful. So, And there it, there has been actually in some Turkish universities now conferences that deal with the, that shared like the Greek, uh, Greek, Assyrian and Armenian genocides that happened in the at the end of the Ottoman Empire. So that's uh, so it is starting to change at that level. And so perhaps if she were in university now, that, that she would be hearing more competing uh, voices at the university level. But the government policy is still very hard. It's, it's, there's no debate from their point of view. So the manuscript you're working on, is that mostly your family story or is it um, kind of documentary history? So I, I originally thought, okay, I need to f- fully understand my family's history because I was talking to this girl and I realized wow, I don't, I don't really know enough. Like, I know a few things. I've read a couple books, but I don't even know fully what happened to my own family. I really only had that one story my aunt told me about how they, how my great-grandparents escaped. My great-grandparents had been dead for 30 years, so I couldn't speak to them. But I thought, I'll go and I'll interview my family, and I'll like that. the book will be about the genocide from the perspective of my family's story. And so I applied for an arts grant in Canada, and I got that, which was really exciting. And sort of made me feel like this is this is the right project. I'm going to go do this. So I spent a month interviewing my family and learned so much from them, and also then started reading. So everything I was just talking about in terms of the geopolitics of the denial, I didn't know any of that at the time, really. Mm. And so I started really seriously studying that. And then I moved to Australia to do a master's degree and ended up writing a thesis in Armenian cultural identity. And and so, but then I realized I needed to know even more. Like, it was this trap of, like, I got mm-hmm. into with research. I'm like, okay, because there wasn't enough of my family's story left. Like, so much of it had been forgotten. And it was really tragic because my aunts and cousins and great aunts, they all remembered my great-grandmother talking about the villages that she and my great-grandfather were from. And they knew that they had known the names of those villages at some point. Mm-hmm. And so they would all say, oh, you know, go ask your cousin or go ask your aunt because they all thought someone else would know it or someone else would have written it down. <laughs> yeah. Nobody could find it. So the, the, those details are probably lost forever. They can't be recovered. And that was sort of became part of the story was the, the gaps in the story, the holes in it that could never be recovered. So then I went to Armenia. After the master's degree, I felt like okay, now I'm really grounded in this. And I went to Armenia and I spent two months there. I interviewed anybody who would talk to me. It was a really fantastic experience. I hooked up with the U.S. Peace Corps, and they so they introduced me to all the locals they knew who spoke English, or they found people who could translate for me, which was fantastic. So I got to interview, and I found like Armenians, Armenia's modern history from the genocide through the the its almost disappearance, almost being wiped out by Ataturk's armies, 
to then being sucked into the Soviet Union, which on the one hand saved it, but on the other hand scarred it forever. Exactly. So there's all these incredible layers of history just in the last century and a bit. And so I, I was absolutely fascinated and absolutely amazed. So the book, as I wrote it, shifted with each phase in the research, it shifted. So it, and it became, so then I had all this research I'd interviewed. And then I interviewed a whole bunch of people in Australia, uh, the Armenian Australian community. So I got to know their story, which is another layer of the story, because as opposed to my great grandparents who went to Canada in 1920, right after the genocide and sort of settled. Australia was not accepting people from that region of the world at that time. So the Australian-Armenian community, which is today about 50,000 people or more, those are families who were displaced after the genocide into uh, like Jordan and Iraq and Iran and Egypt and Lebanon and now have been displaced again looking for better lives than they could find in, in sort of the Middle East where there's still a lot of difficulties. So they've they've got this multiple layer of displacement and so that was really fascinating getting to know the Armenian Australian community. And then I had all this all these interviews and I so I just sat down and I thought like oh, I don't know how to decide what's most important. So I'm just gonna write it all up and just see what happens and it was two hundred thousand words. <laughs> so that was my first draft. And that's a very long history. And I realized that at least I knew that was too long. And yeah. that's when I, so in my head, I'd just been like, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be, I'll send it off to a publisher and they're going to love it and we'll edit it together and it's, it's going to be so well received. And didn't know anything about the industry at all. And that's when I started, you know, asking some friends to read it. And eventually someone said, oh, maybe you should go, you know, to an event at the New South Wales Writers' Centre and learn a bit about the publishing industry so you kind of know you know, you know how to shape this a bit better and you know what you need to do. So I went to the Creative Nonfiction Festival and that's that's when I learned my manuscript probably should have come in more around 80,000 words in mm-hmm. 200. <laughs> and so I started shaping that and uh, got it down to, I think I got it down to about 120 over multiple drafts and then sent it off to a publisher who uh, sent me an extremely nasty detailed rejection letter. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> And that's when I realized I probably needed more more help. So I got a ma- I hired a manuscript assessor to read through the whole thing, and and I sent her the rejection letter with the manuscript. And I said, "Look, this is what I've been told." And um, so this guy this guy told me sort of what was wrong with it, but not really what I could do about it. He sort of had written me off as like, "Sorry." Actually, even getting that level of detail is something to be grateful for because often it will just be a standard um, rejection. So in a sense, as, as harsh as that is. And um, and that definitely spurred me to go and get the feedback I needed to make it better because I could have spent another year just sitting at home writing it, you know, re- rewriting and rewriting and not necessarily even knowing what I would, should be doing. So it was that rejection letter, as harsh as it was, I think the thing that really got me about it was he signed off with, I'm sorry, I couldn't be more encouraging. And he's <laughs> like, well, you could have been if you wanted to be. <laughs> you could have just framed this slightly differently. <laughs> but I guess he wanted to be like, do not ever contact me about this manuscript again, <laughs> which I haven't. Um, but having, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Having that detailed rejection letter and, and you know, it took me a couple months. I didn't look at anything again, but I was, for a couple of months, I just couldn't emotionally handle it. But then when I had a little distance from it, I said, okay, I need to figure out how to fix these things. And I, I sort of wanted to say, like, no, I can I can make this manuscript um, desirable to a publisher if I just figure out how. So I hired um, a travel memoirist, Claire Scobie, to read through it. And she gave me f- really fantastic feedback on what I needed to do 
to to reframe the draft and and so I'd originally envisioned this as sort of a family memoir history book but it actually sort of it became a travel memoir in which it's the all of the details of the genocide and and our modern Armenia's struggles and the geopolitics of the denial uh, which even like today in Australia isn't federally recognized and um, the Robert Mann has written a great essay talking about how that the idea of the federal government not being able to recognize the Armenian genocide connects with the sort of lack of discussion about Aboriginal um, traumas here. Mm -hmm. So that's a really excellent essay that I recommend reading. Um, it's called A Turkish Tale. And so now I've forgotten what I said. <laughs> I was doing pretty good there for a while. Yeah. Oh, look, no, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And um, so that sort of helped frame your revisions of, of the, that larger manuscript was sort of that those sorts of, I guess, larger ideas um, that went back you know, to... So you were talking about the way the travel aspect ah, of it right. um, became an important frame. The tra So the travel memoir, exactly. So the story actually starts with me in Canada meeting this Turkish woman and 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 I'm really upfront about you know this very racist reaction that I had like which luckily I I never said that to her like it was private and internal and I'm thankful I'm thankful for that mm. it was a private internal thing and I uh but I think if I hadn't been someone who had been so sort of raw raw multiculturalism and um, cultural empathy. I think I would have just very easily sunk into I hate Turkish people, and that would have been it. Like I never would have explored that. It just would have been like, okay, I'm not working with her, and I'll never, you know, deal, like I'll never address this within myself. So I was thankful for that. But so the book became the story of my own transformation through the learning of my family's history within the larger Armenian story, and it talks about coming to Australia and where I actually, because I lived in Sydney where there was an Armenian community, I'd never lived in a city with an Armenian community before, suddenly even though I was in Australia, I felt more connected to my family. And I went to Armenian events here and I like I looked around and I'm like, all these people look like my relatives and it was yeah. so exciting. So. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because um, I think that's a that's a kind of unique way of, of grappling with a story like the, you know, such a traumatic story through that idea of travel and exploration and discovery. And as you say, it's something that's still kind of, you know, even the Australian government doesn't recognise it as happened. So this is still something that's quite um, almost a controversial topic mm, still. Amazingly is. enough, for even though it happened 100 years ago now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. No, it's still it's still very much a factor in, for example, US-Turkish relations. Mm. The US government, the president still, and even Obama wouldn't use the word Armenian genocide or the term Armenian genocide because it's so politically charged. Despite mm. the overwhelming evidence in... For example, there's a fabulous book that came out in 2015 called Armenia, Australia, and the Great War. And it's an uh, Australian-Armenian historian and Peter Stanley, an Australian historian, who jointly looked through Australia's own archives. And, and for example, like uh, war diaries from diggers in World War One in Gallipoli. Mm -hmm. And they show the, the history from the Australian perspective. And it's an incredible book that documents the, the you know, what happened there. And then it ends by saying, despite all this, the Australian federal government still will not acknowledge because of its political relationship with Turkey. It's amazing because we, we tend to think of history as something that, you know, happened 
and we, you know, it happened over there and it's got no impact on our lives. But this is something that happened 100 years ago that's still having a direct, tangible kind of political influence, I suppose. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the reasons it fascinated me so much. And I yeah. feel it is so relevant. It, it, it connects to so many larger stories because it connects to how we think about the Holocaust and it connects to how we think about, um, you know, genocides in, in uh, of Native peoples during settler, mm. quote-unquote, settler eras. And it also connects to ideas about, like, who we who we empathise with. Mm. You know, why is, it, why is it so impossible? I mean, I understand now politically why, you know, people don't acknowledge what actually happened but why is it so impossible for us to empathize with the Armenian genocide whereas we do empathize with other kinds of you know historical traumas that go on why is it that these people are still fighting for the recognition of what actually happened mm-hmm. yeah I found that really fascinating when I started reading into it because one of the things I thought initially in my initial naivety I was like wow you can you can map the Armenian genocide and the holocaust and the Armenian genocide effectively provided the blueprints for the holocaust especially mm-hmm. because the Ottoman Empire and Germany were allies in World War One, mm-hmm. and the Germany had officers in the Ottoman Empire during World War One, and so you and so I thought I was like oh wow like after the Holocaust, Jewish and Armenian communities must have come together in shared yeah. experience and, and sort of learned from each other and empathized. No, exact opposite. They hate each other. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. There was, I mean, the, the details of that schism are quite complex, mm. but I've had, I've had Jewish people like slam their fists down on the table in front of me and tell me that nothing was as bad as, as the Holocaust just because I mentioned the Armenian genocide. Wow. They immediately got defensive yeah. and upset. And I was was really surprised by that. And then I read more into that history. And they're, they're, like I said, it's quite complicated. But So where are you at now with this manuscript? Are you still working on it? Or? So after I went through the whole revision with Claire Scobie, which um, was, a, was a big, huge overhaul of the book, then I sent it in to the Varuna Publisher Introduction Program, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic program. And it was accepted for a fellowship there. So I got to spend a week at Varuna in 2015, <laughs> which was wonderful. And had a manuscript assessor read it through, and she gave me some advice. So I did a whole nother revision of it that was less in, uh, less sort of completely rehauling it, but still quite quite in depth. And then uh, I've been sending it out and just getting response. I think uh, several publishers have read it, and what they say is uh, they have been quite positive about it, which is which is great. I did I did what I said I was going to do, and I made it appealing to publishers. But they've said it's for the Austra- for the Australian market, there's just not enough of a market here for a travel memoir of Armenia. And they've actually advised me to go to the U.S. And now that it's was shortlisted in the Kill Your Darlings uh, Unpublished Manuscript Award uh, listing, I feel like it is the right time to go to U.S. publishers and and overseas publishers. But I don't know anything about the like how to do that, so that's mm. another learning curve that I need to tackle. Uh, so so that's sort of been on the back burner for for right now. And so you're also writing another another um, piece called How to Be Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to talk about that? I know you're used to working on it, so you might not want to talk about it. But... No, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've been working on it for a while now, and I, it's it's a project that really excites me. It's 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 so I've that process of writing travel memoir sort of shaped my writing from there on, and so this is a memoir. It's not strictly a travel memoir, but it's a memoir of myself being Canadian, moving to Australia. And, you know, I have Australian citizenship now, but sort of trying to figure out what that means for me and how it's shaping my identity. 
and it's a much lighter book. It's sort of looking at a lot of the things that make me really love Australia that are incredibly entertaining, like the language and uh, <laughs> just various things that I, I enjoy, like uh, the obsession with, with lollies and ice bovos and like learning all the names of the different <laughs> biscuits. I have like, I go into great depth about being told that I had to eat ice bovos or I was not allowed to be Australian. <laughs> It's on the citizenship test, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, and then that's and joking about the citizenship test as yeah. well, and 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 what I, what we had to memorize for that because there's a lot of questions about the flags. You have to know the flags in depth. Uh, there was 15 percent of my test was devoted to knowing the flags. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, <laughs> I can see Michelle kind of groaning in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> And I know that test is being changed now, but I don't think it's being changed in significantly or, um, yeah. In a more meaningful way, no, yeah. not at all. Michelle, you were interested in, in um, the Canadian-Australian connection. Yeah, look, I mean, having had that marvellous experience of, in, in, of travelling, of uh, sort of living in different communities and, and also just having that uh, sort of marvellous exposure to, uh, I guess, uh, sort of a con- Canadian literary culture, even, you know, sort of if that was at the very start of your um, <laughs> your career at, at, um, at the age of seven in, in, <laughs> in, 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 in primary school. Yeah. I mean, do you have sort of some observations uh, about the differences in, in, in terms of um, an Australian writing community and industry compared to other places that you've lived in and observed when I was in uh when I was in Canada I lived in Winnipeg which is a smaller city uh, and I did take a few creative writing courses and was starting to get involved a little bit I I worked for our creative writing journal at the University of Winnipeg uh, for a year while I was there but it was very much I was I was very young and I didn't really sort of have any sort of broader perspective on anything and Winnipeg being such a small place there wasn't really a uh, like there were no major publishers who had offices there for example so there wasn't a lot of of writing community that was easily visible or easily accessible I, I think there was probably more than I realized but you would have had to really go and search for it so when I moved to Australia though that was when I first started, I had done all this research and I was really starting to take my writing seriously and I was so glad that people directed me to the New South Wales Writers' Centre. And I've been able to connect to the writing community here so well through uh, that organisation and the Australian Society of Authors. And, and people talk about Melbourne and how it's, you know, this cultural mecca, especially for writers and just all writers go there and it's so wonderful. And, and I've never lived in Melbourne so I you don't, don't want to I, live in Melbourne. I, well, I, can't, I, can't, I can't compare. But I, I, I feel like I've just benefited so much from the incredible community here in Sydney. So when people say like, oh, there's, you know, there's not that much in Sydney, I compare that to Winnipeg and I think, wow, there's so much here in Sydney. Like when I work at the New South Wales Writers' Centre now and we do events with publishers regularly. So I've met publishers from most of the major companies and like the Sydney Writers' Festival is one of the most amazing writers' festivals in the world. And so I feel like as a writer myself, my writing has been definitely shaped by the Australian writing community. And I feel very lucky to be here uh, in Sydney specifically, but in Australia in general. 
when I was in Canada also, I mainly read, I mean, I didn't have any sort of direction. I was just, I didn't have anyone really influencing um, me and or inspiring me in any sort of specific way. So I read mostly American authors and UK authors. And I sort of tried to read like the greats and the classics to figure out like, oh, like, I need to, I felt like I needed to know those things. It was when Australia, I got, I came to Australia and I started to sort of see the writing community and started to see myself as part of it and I realized I've never read an Australian author ever in my life which was not intentional it just it never happened and so I set myself a program of just reading people who are currently writing today in Australia partly to learn about the publishing industry but partly just to know to to read about what was being written and read so now I almost solely read Australian writers I listen to a lot of audiobooks from all over the world but I read Australian I buy and read Australian writers and do you feel like that's had a kind of real um, impact upon the way you write and the way you think about yourself as a writer in Australia? I definitely think that that's helping me, like in terms of, especially in terms of the book I'm writing, it's, it's called How to Be Australian. So I, I feel like the more I read about Australia and what's being written about Australia and in Australia d- informs that. Like, I don't think I could write that book if I'd never read an Australian author. That would just, I just couldn't mm. do that ethically or or <laughs> literally. Um, but but because I now have read so many Australian authors, like I, I feel like the book I'm writing is sort of an update on the 1957 was 1950s book, uh, They're a Weird Mob. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah. yeah, if you've if you've read that, so mine is taking the same idea, which is like I arrived in this country, didn't I didn't I honestly did not know very much about it, um, and have now become a part of it and embraced it and I love it and and just want to share those experiences and my perspective and how it's shaping me. It sounds like you write a lot of, and from what I know of your writing, that you write a lot of creative nonfiction, memoir, travel memoir, um, so nonfiction primarily. Um, were you always interested in writing nonfiction, or, or what drew you to nonfiction? And have you know, are you writing fiction as well? <laughs> I think I like. I read more nonfiction. I'm more drawn to it. Mm. I I think I like the boundaries of reality. I, I read a lot of fiction as well, and I find fiction. I mean, fiction can be so powerful and incredible when it's when it's really well done. I think from in terms of myself, I'm really keen on human experiences and, and lives lived and how that is shaped on the page because how, how like shaping that well on the page is a really that's what I learned. You can't just put down just here's the things that happened because <laughs> that's it, it may all be true and it might all be, uh, you know, there might be a powerful story in there. But to get people to want to read it, it still needs to be crafted in a way that's compelling. So staying within the boundaries of what's true, but shaping it into a story. I, I find that process really fascinating. You write a lot of nonfiction, Michelle. <laughs> Is that something that appeals to you too? Uh, look, I, I think I tend to write nonfiction when I feel like there's something that needs to be said mm-hmm. in a particular way um, because I actually write about uh, Algerian genocide. Right. So uh, there is something in the testimony um, Mm -hmm. which I I think um, has a a, a power on the page that is a little bit unquantifiable. Mm -hmm. You know, it sort Mm -hmm. of exists outside of um, what you can measure and it's elusive because it's it's I, I guess it's it's what you can't uh, knowing that writing is so crafted knowing that there's an organization to the ideas and there's a selection process um, 
what is it about that notion of, of truth and testimony and uh, I guess the human word um, that makes it such a powerful read mm. um, and yes yeah, so, so with, without a doubt um, the, the the non-fiction uh, and, and also I think there's some really amazing things being done with non-fiction at the moment you know like really um, sort of um, bold moves that are um, sort of quite breathtaking I'm loving actually it's a it's it's a Toronto um, publication uh, mm. brick I don't know if you've come across it but I would definitely recommend oh. it because it only publishes non-fiction and it's um, it, it's it's just it's, it's got a, a fantastic ethos and I think some of the non-fiction that's appearing in is is, is really um, you know fabulous and it's, it's great to see a publication that's dedicated to non-fiction that won't accept fiction won't accept, accept you know so um and and also it's just it's just a beautiful publication oh, so it may might be one for you to to look into yeah absolutely um, thank you yes yeah particularly with the canadian connection and it might also provide just mm-hmm. that little um sort of toehold into um uh, you know sort of outside of the australian um sort of publishing industry that might help uh garner the interest of, of publishing houses outside of that's um, that's a great point absolutely yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I've got some nice cross-cultural collaboration going on here. This is nice. Um, I was wondering um, if we might move to um, some advice for young writers. You came and spoke to some of my students, actually, who were, who were doing some writing interns, um, internships about some advice for young writers. And you gave a fantastic piece of advice, which they keep mentioning to me, which is about rejection. Ah, is, was this the, the rejection goal? So set a rejection yes, goal? Yes, yeah. Okay. Do you want to speak about that? Absolutely. This is something I feel really strongly about it when I stumbled upon this advice myself it totally changed the way I thought about things which was so the piece of advice is to set a rejection goal and that's to like set a number of rejections to collect and I mean you can think you could I mean you could say I want 100 rejections and just send out the same piece to you know 100 places and obviously it's going to get rejected but the idea is that you're sending out pieces that you believe could be published in that publication you've tailored them for the publication you've done the hard work but in the end, you have no control over whether or not that editor accepts your piece. And there's so many reasons for rejections. Like, the, for example, with the Sydney Review of Books, the editor, uh, uh, Katrina Menzies-Pike, came and spoke at an event that I was at. And she was saying, she's like, I get so many great pitches. I just don't have space for all of them. Like, I have such a long list of, of essays that I would love to publish, but I can't say yes to all of them no matter how great they are because I just don't have the space and funds for them. So you can't control how the editor, like that's that's outside of your control. But what is in your control is sending out those pitches or submissions to places that, that will at least consider them seriously. So if you set a rejection goal and you can say like 100 a year, which is actually quite a lot. I wouldn't start with that. <laughs> Maybe say 30 a year. Uh, you know you've sent out 30 pieces that you've worked hard on, that you've put in the effort of researching the place you've sent them to. You've made sure you've met the submission guidelines. So you can feel good about that when you achieve that goal. And regardless of of what happens, you, you've achieved your goal, you've worked hard, you can feel good about that. But chances are, if you've worked to send out that many pieces, then some something that, you know, the universe will <laughs> click into place for you and, and and yours will be one of the pieces that's selected. So I found that the longer I've done this, the higher percentage of of what I've sent out has been accepted. So it started with maybe like 5% and then it's moved up to, you know, somewhere in the 20, 20 to 30%. Mm. So I'm 
developing a better portfolio. I'm targeting the places I'm submitting to better because I have more experience with that. Um, but it, the key thing was that like rejection hurts. It still hurts. But the more you force yourself to to accept it, the less it hurts, I guess. You acquire a thicker skin after yeah. time, don't you? Yes. You can, yeah. you can kind of shake it off. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I give myself 24 hours. I mean, I don't write creatively, I write academically, yeah. but I give myself 24 hours after rejection to privately stew and yeah. then I'll swear and I'll cry and I'll, you know, yeah. curse and recess. Why am I doing this? This is stupid. I should just go and get a real job, you know, and <laughs> et cetera. Um, and then 24 hours later, I have to get over it and send it off to some somewhere else. So, and, do, and does yeah. that work for you now? Like, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like I, I just get out all of the emotion excellent in one fell disgusting swoop so which yeah. makes me really hard to be around for those 24 hours <laughs> just need a sign yeah yeah don't talk to me <laughs> um but we were saying so i i should say because i got that one rejection letter that was that was detailed but quite harsh and in terms of my creative writing that was that's the only time i've ever gotten a rejection letter that was really um the, like the way it was written was harsh generally they're either very gentle or there's just nothing at all it's just you know you don't hear back um but i think academically it's it's not the same i think some of the rejections can be much harsher the rejection's pretty harsh yeah they don't hold back yeah. i just, i remember my, my my favorite rejection was um it was one sentence and it just said i don't think this piece is of interest to this journal full stop and i'm like <laughs> okay what am i supposed to do with that great oh. thanks guys <laughs> so i kind of i kind of am envious even though you got a a, um, a harsh rejection at least you got feedback <laughs> better than just one sentence that's, go away that's that's true no, i mean the feedback was just enumerating the ways the manuscript was terrible so it was it was really harsh oh dear but i uh, and i mean i could have stopped then but it actually kind of galvanized me to be like no like i'm gonna, I'm gonna prove show you wrong him. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> i hope he lives long enough for me to prove him wrong <laughs> maybe you should just send him a copy of the published manuscript and yes. sign it yes. Yes. Absolutely. yes burn some bridges while you go why but, not <laughs> but that said obviously i'm not going to name this person but i did read a book in which he was involved as a publisher uh um, recently, the book that came out last year, and he was involved with it, and he was thanked profusely in the acknowledgments. And I did, and I, I didn't know that the acknowledgments were at the end, so I didn't know he was involved until I'd read the whole book. I didn't like the book at all, and in hindsight, I realized, okay, well, maybe we just like completely different things yeah. as well, and that can just be a factor. I mean, mm. I don't love every book that gets published, but obviously somebody did. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are subjective. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so that's I think that's also. In setting rejection goals, you're sort of training yourself not to take rejection personally. You're just checking off, like, okay, got that rejection, on to the next one. And I always have my next piece in the works. Like, when I send something out, I've al I've already started on another thing, and I've already got the next plan, so that when I get that rejection, it might slow me down. Mm. I might take an hour to stew about it. But well, it if you take an hour, you're beating me. Yeah. <laughs> 24 is necessary over here. I woke up Saturday morning and I there was a the only email in my inbox was a rejection email. It was a very nice one, but it was just you know we we don't we can't fit this in our publication at this time. And I was like, oh, this is gonna wreck my day. But within an hour, I'd actually forgotten about it because I just got in, stuck into something else. Well, that's good. Yeah. 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 So, what other advice would you give to young writers who are sort of starting out um, on their kind of writing careers? I have so much advice. I'll try. I've tried to. I've tried to outline my key points. Yeah. And I think two things are. There's there's the craft side and there's the industry side and and that was my point 
earlier when I was talking about, you know, my first draft, I just sat down and I wrote 200,000 words. And in a way that was good because the process of cutting down that manuscript and working through, now it's 73,000 words. So I learned a lot in that process. So I'd say on the craft side, write a lot, throw it a lot, but get a lot of feedback. The more feedback you can get early on, uh, the, the faster your skills will develop. So how you can get feedback, well, first of all, you can um, learn skills through, like there's so many useful podcasts out there now, mm-hmm. or like read books like Big Magic that'll, that'll like teach you, you know, about about how to think about what you're doing but then like join a writer's group and like don't just join the first writer's group that comes along but try a few different writer's groups for example through the new south wales writer center (laughs) um try a few different ones and see the one that that you resonate with best where you feel like ah like the people here are doing similar things to me and connecting with my work uh the first writer's group i joined didn't really fit and so i found another one and now like there's five of us the feedback we give each other is really helpful. We, we sort of get what each other is trying to do and we show each other how we're not succeeding and give suggestions for how we could push those drafts in a better place. Um, and we always sort of go on the, when people tell you what's wrong, they're usually right about it. 90% of the time, when someone tells you something's wrong, they're right. The advice that they give you to fix it, they're not necessarily right about that. Like, it's great to hear those suggestions, but uh, feel free to try things in your own way. So that's, on the craft side, getting feedback, just writing a lot, just write a lot, but don't be precious about it. Throw out a lot of it as well. Just think about my 200,000 word draft, my 73,000 word draft. There's a lot of words hanging out there that you've gotten rid of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then on the industry side, if you actually want a career, it's one thing to write, but writing is an industry, it is a business. And if you want to be part of that, if you actually want to make money from your writing at some point, then you've got to learn about the how to how to get your writing to fit into places that will eventually result in publications that might bring in money. Uh, so you can do that by attending events. You can join an organization such as the Australian Society of Authors or the New South Wales Writers Centre that their whole goal is to help you understand the industry better and to connect you with people in the industry um there's a podcast called starving artist have you heard of that one it's out of melbourne it's fantastic it's it's about uh the idea of if you're an artist how do you how do you find ways to connect to audience and build audience that will eventually turn into financial the financial side of things um and just understand it'll take a long time like it'll take a very long time like i said i started that manuscript in 2010 it's still not published. I have accepted in my heart that it might never be published. And I'm still, like, I'm working on the next manuscript. This is actually the How to Be Australian, the one I'm working on right now. It's the fifth manuscript I've written. So it's it can take a long time. I was at the National Young Writers Festival last year, and there was a woman there talking about She self-published her book. She said the writing, which was, it was and it was fairly successful. She said the writing of it took 1,300 hours. But the marketing of it, she invested 2,000 hours in that. Mm. So that's just a sort of numerical example of how to think about craft versus industry. If you want to self-publish and actually turn that into income, uh, you need to think about this is now a small business. How do I how do I market this? How do I promote it? Mm. Um, so 
the more you can learn on both the craft side and the industry side, they'll both benefit you. Yeah. Um, you talked a lot too about, to my students about public speaking mm. and public speaking skills. So I was wondering if you might touch on that. Absolutely. I think I think this is something authors often overlook. And I think it's because a lot of people who become writers are maybe the kind of people who are a little more shy and like to, and like to ex- express themselves on the page as opposed to in front of people. I'm lucky because I enjoy both. But I think... And I think no matter who you are, writer or otherwise, developing your public speaking skills is one of the best things you can do uh, in your career, specifically for writers, because nowadays writers are often invited to speak. Uh, So even just in terms of doing a podcast, but in front of people, and it's another way to get your writing out there. It's another way to promote your writing. So for example, you could write something short and memorize it and go deliver it at the moth. And that's a really Mm. easy way. Like, you don't have to have any sort of, like, that could be the first thing you ever write. But that's one way of getting it out there in front of an audience. So developing your public speaking skills, I've been, I used to teach public speaking. And now I've I've been involved with the Toastmasters Club here in Sydney for five years. So I've seen a lot of people come through the doors of our club, and they're just terrified to be in front of people. And I think the only true antidote to that is the sort of gradual exposure therapy of getting up and doing it. So being a member of a public speaking club, like I would see, you could see people six in six months to a year, they got so much more confident and their skills improved so drastically simply by just getting up and practicing and getting the sort of gentle, supportive feedback that those clubs are designed to give. And so, for example, last year I had an invitation to speak in front of a thousand people and I had no hesitation about that. I would have... I, said yes to that right away. It didn't end up happening, but I I wasn't paralyzed by fear or indecision because I had spoken in front of people for so long now. So if 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 that intimidates you, if you're getting stressed just by hearing this right now, that's a sign that you need to go join a public speaking club or get some practice somehow right now. Go today. But as you said, like as part of the writing, you know, being a writer today, there's a lot of marketing and promotional kind mm. of activities and networking and, you know, going up to people at events and introducing oh, yourself. yeah, that too. That as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And networking is another huge thing where like you can develop your skills. It's not like, oh, I'm terrible at networking, so I always will be. You can develop those skills. Um, with public speaking, the great thing about practicing public speaking is like I would actually, when I was speaking, I would take things I was writing and sort of remold them into speeches. And that gave me a chance to sort of bounce my ideas off an audience. So I could instantly, and you can tell when you're speaking, if people are paying attention, if, the, if what you're saying is connecting by the, you know, the look on their faces and their body language. So that was a way for me to, to actually, again, get some initial feedback. Is this idea, is this idea connecting or am I expressing it in a way that's, that it's just going over people's heads? And you write a lot of comedy, I believe. Mm. So that's a, you know, that's a nice little test. Do people laugh? <laughs> Absolutely. You can't, you can't disguise that reaction, can you? Absolutely, yeah. The best thing, the best way to just get over yourself is really to write something that you think is really funny and then get up in front of an audience that doesn't laugh at all. <laughs> and that sort of just teaches you, okay, I survived that. I can, I can survive that again. That's the worst thing that could have happened. And I survived it. Yeah, like if you get up and nobody laughs and mm. your, your life will continue. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. have So so much of audience laughter is about context. Like if, mm. like I did stand-up comedy for a while and like so much of it is, was the person who spoke before you funny? Like, mm. If the person who spoke before you bombed, 
you're going to have a way harder time, no matter how good your material is. So, like, just learning those kind of things and understanding that, um, you know, you can get up in front of an audience and, and have a really negative reception in terms of everybody's bored, and and then you stroll off the stage and, and you're fine. Nothing, you know, nothing has happened to you. The sun will continue to rise yes. in the morning. <laughs> I really, I think that research will eventually show, and perhaps it's starting to show, don't quote me on that, that there's something primal in our brains that that tells us that we need to be afraid when we have multiple eyes focused on us mm. that that's that's a danger signal and there's something deep in our brain telling us that we're in danger and <laughs> we need being to run circled by yeah. an angry mob exactly <laughs> yeah like the, the, the animals, animals are, yeah yeah. <laughs> I, yeah i think that's what it is and if you can train yourself out of that if you get up in front of enough people your brain will eventually realize oh okay i've got 200 people looking at me and i'm fine there's, there's not there's nothing to be afraid mm. of here i just need to say my story deliver my message I know I've got the skills to do that because I've practiced so uh. even lecturing you know I remember the first time I gave a lecture I was terrified and then you know now what seven years something later I'm like I don't care (laughs) I could lecture in front of three people or 500 and it wouldn't make much difference to me gradual yeah because those people have never risen up and attacked you during the lecture (laughs) no and even if I've thought it's been really dull I mean (laughs) What's the worst that can happen? They can go, oh, that was really dull. Mm, yeah, yeah, and then they'll probably forget <laughs> you for that. And then they'll probably forget about it in three minutes when there's a queue at the lunch. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of times this isn't always true, but a lot of times a key thing to remember is the audience is generally on your side. Like the audience generally wants you to do well. They want to be entertained. They want to be engaged. Mm. Um, that's not always true. I know. I spoke. I did a lecture. Um, at the centenary of the Armenian Genocide in, in 2015, I did uh, a, a one-hour talk about it, and I was warned by some people before it started that there were genocide denialists in the audience because there is a small, tiny community of genocide denialists here in, in Australia. Uh, so I was, the whole time, that time I was really nervous about, because there was a Q&A section at the end, and I'd never been confronted by denialists in person before, and I was just really worried about what was going to happen. Um, but more often than not, the audience is on your side. Were you attacked? <laughs> I was asked some controversial questions that I, I mean, if I'd been responding to them on paper, I could have responded to very coherently. Mm-hmm. But just in that context, I felt very nervous and I stumbled over my words a bit. But I wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't vicious. It was just, the questions were, you know, if you know the full history, you're like, oh my gosh, how could you ask that question? But if you don't know it, it sounds like a very reasonable question. So, um, it was, yeah, it was tricky. We have completely run out of time, but just <laughs> to summarize your, 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 um, advice, rejections, keep going, keep writing, um, learn as much as you can and develop your public speaking skills. Is there anything you wanted to quickly add to that? Just, I think, engage with the writing community as much as possible. So many of the people I've met are so wonderful and so nice. And my best friends now are all other writers. And so just, just go to events and read people's books and and talk to people and get involved and and I mean career you can think of it in the broad sense of you know the way you spend your time and 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 the goals you work towards I still don't make a lot of money from my writing but I I wouldn't change anything because it brings me so much joy and happiness that's a lovely note to end it on. Thank you so much, Ashley, for coming in and speaking to us today. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll put up links to your um, website and to your writing so people can have a look. And um, I must remember to put up a link to the Starving Artist podcast. Yes, it's yeah. excellent. 
And the New South Wales Writers Centre as well, where Ashley works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you again. Um, this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be really, really super helpful in helping other people find the, um, the podcast and also listen to excellent interviews like the one we just did with Ashley. Okay, we'll see you again in a week. Bye.